Hello and welcome to Russians with Attitude, Sea Trap and News Review. Hello to all Russians, aspiring Russians, crypto Russians and all our friends around the world. Today, as I said, we're gonna make an overview of the most important events that happened in January of 2024 in Russia, in the Ukraine and the world. I am Nikolai, this is my host Kirill, also joined by our friend, Russian teacher, Chad. <laughs> this episode is dedicated to the brave Mujahideen of Texas. <laughs> Texas People's Republic. Yeah. yeah. So guys, what are you drinking? I'm drinking kombucha tea with some brusnika and klukva juice. Is this okay? And how do you translate brusnika and klukva? Cranberry? Uh, yeah. Klukva is cranberry. I'm not sure what brusnika would be. I don't even know if they have it in English. Uh, Bosnica is cowberry, I believe. Yeah, I'm it's not sure. Not... There are so many berries, and I always get them mixed up. It's very complicated. There's a yeah. lot of European berries that just don't exist in America, so I just want mm. to know. Yeah. I'm drinking uh, kefir as usual. All right. Yeah, I am currently uh, drinking water, but I will probably uh, have a drink a bit later on. I am planning on. Having one of my favorite drinks, actually, namely Bailey's coffee and milk. Mm -hmm. I see. The Irish coffee. All right. So now to the news. Now to the news. This time around, there's really a lot of important things worth talking about. The first item will be former Donbass hero Igor Strelkov was sentenced to four years in prison. There were a lot of uh, sentences, actually. Uh, the terrorist Daria Trepova, who bombed the cafe in Peter uh, in April of 2023, is sentenced to 27 years of prison, which is a record sentence in Russia's history ever issued to a female. A Russian presidential campaign is taking up speed, and a new candidate just dropped, Boris Nadezhdin. People are lining up to leave their signature for this guy. What's going on? Uh, there were riots in Bashkiria that were misrepresented in the, in the media. A Russian military plane, Il-76, uh, that was reportedly full of Ukrainian POWs, fell down in Belgorod Oblast. Its 24-year-old pilot and the crew were also killed and the guards as always, we will try to evaluate this uh, incident with a cool head. Finally, there is some serious movement of Russian ground forces in Avdiivka. That's a short list of everything that we are gonna talk about in this live stream. As always, you're welcome to give us your own topics for discussion. I mentioned all those news, but Russians internally did not really discuss most of them. You know what actual Russians were preoccupied with the most? <laughs> a, death, a death of a cat that was thrown out from the train by mistake. Because Russians don't really care about human lives all that much. Uh, we care mostly about cat and dog lives. Uh, yeah, it's a bit worrying, really. Let's start with that uh, very topic right away. So, five days ago, a man took a cat on a train trip from Ekaterinburg to St. Petersburg. He let his cat 
wander on a train. The owner himself fell asleep at uh, his bunk. Cat was walking through the train, people were petting him. Then uh, a conductor spotted a, a cat and decided that it's a stray cat that must have jumped on the train from a station. So she released him at the station while the train was staying in the city of Kirov. And uh, unfortunately, this cat, nicknamed Twix, was killed by dogs or he froze to death some hours later. And that's the story that really was a breaking news story in Russia this week. And I mean, it's a pretty bad situation and I like cats, but I don't get really how the, the story can overshadow everything else. There are less people that care about the war, fallen planes, presidential race, anything at all. Uh, Russians this week were making petitions to punish this conductor. And uh, yeah, it was the top news. And what does that tell us really? Well, it tells us that pets or animals in general are more valuable than people. I'm not sure if it's a noble trait or an indicator of being completely atomized, lonely and, and so on. So, have you followed the tragic death of uh, the cat called Twix? I hate to counter or signal the the um, impulses and um, feelings of the Russian nation, but I really don't understand all the hate the conductor is getting. Like, yeah. what should she have done? I mean, it's kind of the owner's fault that he let the cat walk around the train um, with no tag, no anything, no no identifiers, and. Um, I made a mistake. It was not the owner. It was a friend of an owner who. So an owner okay. was already in Saint Petersburg, and he ah, okay. uh, asked mm -hmm. uh, his friend to deliver a cat to him. So it was a okay. mistake, uh, yeah, by multiple people and this uh, idiot who couldn't control his cat inside the bag because there is a specialized kind of carriage for a cat, and well, cats are not supposed to wander around and leave this carriage so yeah it's stupid and it's mostly the fault of this owner's friend of course and the outrage yeah i guess it is about this worrying trend as of late i'm seeing everywhere the the trend of calling your pets kids or children it's not only women who do it uh, for example, they can say about their dog something like, uh, my ribionak is so cute, <laughs> and, and so on. And uh, yeah, a good chunk of internal news are strictly about animals. Oh no, a dog was killed. Or oh, look at this cute bear cup. Oh, look what happened to the cat. And people get in a fit of white hot rage when something bad happens to animals. Yeah. It's one of the Russian traits, I guess. It's not unique. Uh, it's probably the European trait. And it, it's getting even worse when uh, the society gets more lonely. Lonely, atomized, and people are seeing their furry friends as the only friends they have. And they befriend animals because they hate their neighbors. And their neighbors hate them. It's all pretty sad. But enough about the woes of the society i guess and before we talk about the first big topic the plane crash 
In Belgorod, let me check out, uh, check your messages and donations. Let me see. There are a couple of uh, messages from Anonymous that were sent to us before the stream even started. Anonymous, what is the status of sports in Russia? Do people even care about the Russian Premier League? Is hockey now more popular than football? What do you see uh, for the future of Russian sports? I think the state of sports is abysmal. I think that fo Russian football is dying. Yes, I, I believe that hockey, ice hockey and uh, the figure skating are way more popular than football nowadays. And even uh, biathlon. Do you know how, what is biathlon in English? Is this the same? Biathlon. Oh, yeah. It's biathlon. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, the, the winter sports are getting more popular. The astroturfed football is dying because, well, and it's not without the help of the sanctions because sanctions really hit hard the football industry because Russia Russian team cannot compete anywhere as far as I understand. The future of Russian sports, yeah, I think professional sport is dying everywhere and it's uh, a matter of time, really. But yeah, it was never natural, I think, the Russian preoccupation with football. It was like, a, it, it was the same as the Russian desire to join European Union and uh, LARP as if we are Germans or something. Uh, and uh, in fact, we excel at hockey, figure skating, biathlon, and not football, for obvious reasons. Next messages, message from Anonymous. Uh, what are some of the most beautiful places in Russia? that most people outside of Russia have most likely never heard of. Also, what are some beautiful cities likely unknown outside of Russia? Beautiful places. I, a bit of a personal news, I bought tickets. A ticket to Dagestan. I'm gonna oh. go there uh, this summer, actually. So, uh, yeah, Russian tourist guide is alive and well. And I will tell you, all about my experience in Dagestan. And I also plan on visiting Chechnya, Grozny, because it's not that far away and it's like a day trip. I will go to Grozny, I think. It's gonna be fun. So yeah, I'm gonna be vlogging from there. As to the most beautiful places, well, obviously Baikal is exceptional, right? The lake of Baikal. I've never been there yet. I'm planning to change that, but... Uh, Altai mountains are beautiful. There's uh, the, the whole peninsula of Crimea is beautiful. Uh, the Kafkas mountains are beautiful. What else? The, even those places with Severn uh, Asiania. I'm forgetting English words now. I'm sorry. <laughs> Northern Russia? No. How do you say Severn Asiania in English? Um, Northern Lights? Northern Aurora Lights. Aurora Borealis? Yeah, Aurora Borealis yeah. Uh, in, in the far uh, northwest of Russia, pretty remarkable. So, but then yeah. you have to go to Murmansk. Murmansk, yes. But uh, I, I do want, <laughs> you know, there's a funny thing that if we somehow get locked up in this country forever, I won't be really disappointed because there's too much uh, of cities and places to visit. As it is, um, yeah, I'm, I'm doing quite a poor job of it. So I decided to improve it by going to Dagestan, at least. So do you guys have your own beautiful places that you want to recommend? 
Uh, I'm not sure if or I could rec- yeah. recommend places. Uh, I liked Buryatia. That was pretty nice. Uh, I'd like to go back there and see more of it. Um, what did you like the most place... about it? The homicide rates. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like the mountains there. Ah, I, I don't well, know. I like, I like mountains just the same anywhere. Altai mountains. Yes, that I mentioned. Yeah, something I didn't realize until recently is that Siberia is full of mountains. Southern Siberia. Huge mountain yeah. range there. Uh, many people don't know that. Uh, one place I haven't been to, but you didn't mention, is Kamchatka. I'd like to go there. Mm, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. There was there was oh, recently sure. there, there was recently a uh, a uh, few months ago, I think two months ago or something, a competition for most beautiful nature photos in Russia, and there were some photos from Kamchatka and Sakhalin that were uh, very. Uh, mind-blowing and i'd really like to visit there it's not that uh, pricey anymore yeah i've said it some t- someday already but yeah it's like 400 dollars to fly to kamchatka from moscow it's a round trip for a round trip from moscow to kamchatka and from kamchatka to moscow uh 400 dollars it's not that much so mm-hmm. yeah that sounds about right as to the cities, I, we will talk about the cities a bit later. And uh, yeah, Anonymous sent us, thank you. I've been listening to 25.17 or 25.17 band, a rap band, after you mentioned them offhand in your episode about Russian chanson. That's pretty great. Yeah, I, I've heard, the, I think it's Kirill who mentioned them because, yeah, not the hugest fan, but uh, it's... A pretty interesting phenomenon. Um, back to the news. So, the plane crash. A Russian military plane Illusion 76 has recently crashed in uh, Belgorod Oblast. Or was shot down. It was piloted by Vladislav Chmirov, a 24-year-old military pilot who comes from a long lineage of military pilots from Saratov. He died in the plane crash along with all the passengers of this plane. And as it was reported by the Russian side, there were about 50 Ukrainian POWs on that plane. The photos from the crash site clearly indicate that the plane was downed by an anti-air missile. There are at least two questions that remain. Whose uh, AA missile was it, and did the plane actually carry POWs, Ukrainian POWs? Mm. I don't think those are really questions anymore after some of the statements made by Ukrainian officials and Zelensky himself. They have basically said that they shot it down and that it was full of prisoners of war, but that it's still Russia's fault. And they are now trying to come up with a a version that that makes them sound, uh, well, basically to place the blame on Russia. Um, they are varying between that uh, Russia did not inform the Ukrainian side that this flight was taking place, despite uh, Ukrainian military intelligence before that confirming that there was indeed an agreement on an exchange for that day. And the other version they are trying is that um, there were like uh, supposed to be Russian top generals on that plane, and then they just put the POWs inside as human shields or something. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was this, this. So I don't think it's under discussion that the Ukrainians shot it down and that it was indeed full of POWs because both sides agree on that. 
And well, uh, in my opinion, Ukrainian yeah. retort is that at least one person from this this list of people who were on the plane uh, was apparently released months ago already. So he couldn't mm. be on that plane. Or not? He, yeah. Well, not months ago, or three weeks ago in oh, the yeah. January third exchange. And the list—I don't know—the list was posted by Margarita Simonian. It's like not by an official. So. It may be some kind, she may have made a mistake or something. I don't know. It may have been some other list, or maybe that guy did not actually end up being exchanged on January 3rd. We mm. just know that he was on the list for the January 3rd exchange. So we don't really know. Um, but in any case, um, I mean, both sides have now confirmed that the plane was indeed carrying POWs. And um, the Russian Sledsvenny uh, Committee has uh, shown up close footage from the crash site and it was indeed full of people and there are remains of uh, um, well you can tell that uh, some of the corpses or what's left of them they were wearing prisoners clothes and um, mm. you can you you can even tell uh, the um, tattoos on some of the body parts sorry that is a bit morbid but um, yeah, you can even see the the uh, right wing tattoos on some of the body parts on the videos. So it does seem pretty clear to me. The one thing that is not clear is, um, well, there are two options, basically. Uh, one, I believe, is slightly more likely simply based on uh, past events. So the first option is that it was uh, simply a fuck up on the Ukrainian side, that they did not communicate to the air defense um, crew that they should not shoot down that Il-76. Mm -hmm. that, uh, that is the simplest explanation, actually, without like any conspiracies or whatever, or evil plans. That is, uh, and usually the simplest explanation is the correct one. Um, and EL-76 is a very juicy target, it's slow, it's big, it's easy to hit, and uh, you don't get them very often so close to the front lines. And so for any AD crew, it just makes sense to lock on and shoot it down as quickly as possible. So to on the other hand, was uh, the plane flying from Russia to the Ukraine? No, no, it was, uh, it was not flying to Ukraine, it was... Um, Flying to, I don't I don't remember which it was flying from somewhere inside Russia to be to an airport in Belgrade Oblast, close ah, to the Ukrainian border. But uh, the uh, the anti-air in Kharkov Oblast somehow yes uh, reached it right yes across yes. the border yes. Mm -hmm. So what's the second theory? Uh, the second theory is that well. We have seen very successful uh, Ukrainian Patriot system ambushes twice before, um, where they uh, brought the Patriot system very close to the line of contact, um, had it hidden, and uh, conducted an, air uh, an ambush that basically is where the Russian Air Force planes uh, that were flying along that route did not expect any uh, serious AD to be present. They did this once, um, what was it? I believe it was in Belgrade Oblast as well, 
where they shot down like four or five planes in one action. And that was Obryansk Obryansk, yes. That was the heaviest uh, Russian aerospace force loss in the whole war. And the second time they did the same thing in uh, Kherson Oblast, where they also brought uh, a Patriot battery extremely close to the contact line, uh, had it hidden for a while, and then uh, shot down two of our planes that were bombing the um, bridgehead in Grinke. So um, basically, whenever the Ukrainian uh, air defense has done something unexpected, or, or spectacular or weird or otherwise uh, inexplicable. It was when they brought in a Patriot system uh, under heavy cover and had it hidden for a while and executed an ambush. And mm -hmm. so that would fit the modus operandi that they did the same with the Il-76, particularly because they were informed. If we, I mean, that is to be expected that they would be informed that a big plane carrying Ukrainians would be flying uh, along the contact line. And uh, then it would become simply an exchange, an exchange of 65 POWs for an EO-76 and an experienced crew. And that is, if you talk in the language of pure pragmatism, that is an extremely favorable exchange for the Ukrainians. Aren't there uh, 900 Il-76 planes that were produced in Russia? I'm not sure how many of them are active, but uh, it's not like a, mm. this, uh, this is a unique kind of plane, one of a kind. It's still very expensive and the yeah. crew is very expensive. It is very expensive in human and material resources in order to train a pilot. Like in World War II, all sides had more planes and they had pilots to fly them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think we only have like 120 of those. So yeah, they're ex they're exported. Most of the, the Ulushin 76s were exported to various ex-Soviet states and all around the world, really. There's not that many in Russia. So yeah, it's a heavy loss. It's not catastrophic, obviously, but it's still a heavy loss and especially the crew. And uh, yeah. There are two data points that make me think it is the second theory that they did this on purpose. The first is that even though I, I've not uh, looked at the map and broken out the rulers and stuff like that, from what I've read, it was at the extreme end range of the of a Patriot missile battery. So they would have had to have purposely brought up the battery very close to the border where they very mm -hmm. rarely keep them. They usually, like we said, they usually keep them further back near the cities yeah, away of from the front line. So it, it's it's not it's not like they would have had a static battery there that's there all the time. It'd be very vulnerable. So they probably brought it up for one mission, fired the missiles off, and then got it out there as quickly as possible. That makes me think that they used it for a special mission. The other data point is that they have done uh, prisoner transfers using uh, this, this route, I think it's seven times, six or seven times already. And I'm reminded of the stealth fighter shoot down over Yugoslavia, or what's now Serbia, back in the 90s. And one of the reasons the Serbs were able to ambush the stealth fighter is because they kept using the same route every single time on the way to Yugoslavia. The Serbs had spies in Italy near the airbase that waited for the stealth fighter to take off. And then they radioed in. And then they just needed basically a stopwatch 
to know when it was going to be over Serbia. And they just fired the missiles off and only had to turn on the radar for, for a few seconds to light it. So what I think is that we've seen in the past that Ukraine, especially, you know, the SBU and whatnot, they have very good human resources, especially inside of Russia. And I would not be surprised if they had guys either on the ground or just reading reports of whenever this thing was going to take off. They might have even been able to just time it and uh, and fire the missiles off and turn on the radar at the last second. And so that's what I think. I agree with your reasoning and also... Uh, this exact thing, namely reusing the same routes, uh, has been the cause of most serious uh, aerospace force losses that we had really so far. So, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I'm not completely convinced either way. We have not, as of yet, had official confirmation that it was um, a Patriot that shot it down. It's still being investigated. There has uh, so far not been really clear uh, information on that, but yeah, if it was indeed the Patriot, then I also tend to for the second theory that they did it on purpose uh, and it was a planned ambush because that just that fits what they have done before and it's the only explanation for what a Patriot would even be doing so close to the contact line because usually they just keep them like in Kiev. A donation from Amy. Hello, rest in peace to all those who died in ill crash and uh, reap two tweaks too. Listening to you talk about atomic society or atomized uh, society reminded me of a statistic I recently saw. Russia has highest uh, percent of divorces. Why so? Any thoughts? Although it's true that Russia has the highest divorce rate in Europe, but it's not true that it uh, has the highest divorce rate in the world. Uh, it holds a third place right after Kazakhstan and Maldives. Uh, <laughs> of course, there is a, a huge problem with divorces. It's a topic for a, a more in-depth in discussion, but... Part of it is that Russia has so much marriage, as opposed to, say, Western European oh. countries where people just don't get married anymore. It's certainly a part of it, and that's why the top five countries include Kazakhstan and Belarus, and Moldova and Ukraine follow next. Because, yeah, it's Russians and uh, post-Soviet people like to get married a lot. And besides, like in US, as far as I know, it's a custom to give your wife a ring that costs like... A hundred thousand dollars or fifty, uh, something like that, or at least a ten thousand dollars. It's it needs to be respectable. It's it needs to be a very pricey ring. And uh, yeah, it in Russia to get married, you need to uh, buy a hundred dollar ring and uh, to throw a party that costs around a couple of thousand dollars, and that's it. That's it. So it's easier to get married. Uh, by Russian customs, and and it's uh, more common to, for young people to marry uh, in general. Russia is no exception for all the ills, societal ills of the modern world, and uh, the Russians marry a lot, and uh, because uh, a lot of them don't have children, they don't have anything that binds them together, really, and uh, it's a law of marriage, so it's prone to fail. 
Yeah, it's a great point, actually. I haven't thought about that, uh, chat, that <laughs> Russians divorce a lot because we marry a lot. And yeah, we are prone to all those, the same uh, problems, spiritual problems that uh, you have in the West as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm just looking it up and it's actually like we have double the marriage rate of like oh. New Zealand, Norway and Australia. There you go. <laughs> Do you think uh, my explanation of the uh, very expensive ring holds any ground or maybe it's something else as well? I don't think it's the actual cost. I think it's just the willingness of Russians to just go do whatever. You know, and, and like in America, things are very planned out when it comes to dating and romance mm. and marriage. Like, you know, you have like a set number of dates and set amount of time before you should get engaged and then before you should get married. Like um, I, I had I had a friend who uh, got engaged in... I think early 2018 and like got married in like late 2021. So while he was engaged during that time, I, I met my wife, got engaged to her and got married in Belarus. It all happened uh, not even quickly, but relatively quickly compared uh, to to how Americans go through that process. Yeah. And and often it can happen much more quickly in Russia. Like people just get engaged after like, Two or three weeks. It's not very common, yeah. but it happens. My that, dad that never married really... my mom uh, two weeks after they met. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not time. surprised. One of my Russian friends, her her dad told uh, her mom on the very first date that he was going to marry her. Yeah, like <laughs> if, if if you do that in America, people would uh, you you would you would not have you would not have a second date. And, um, and there is an important uh, thing that in the West, if you divorce, then you lose a lot of stuff, right? And in Russia, because we marry spontaneously at the young age a lot of the times, right? Uh, young Russian guys and girls don't have a lot of stuff at all. <laughs> they have nothing to lose. They can divorce and not lose anything, really, <laughs> because they don't have anything. So I guess those are explanations, but I will delve deeper in the, the uh, dedicated live stream about Russian statistics and yeah. uh, one one more point I wanted yeah. to make is that um, a big difference between divorce in Russia and, and American probably in the West is that I don't have any statistics to back this up but it seems that divorce among families that have children is much rarer in Russia yeah. than in America like a lot of those divorces is just people like in their early 20s with no kids uh, getting divorced. It seems that once once they have kids, Russian families are much more likely to stay together. Whereas in America, it seems like usually divorce happens after like 15 or 20 years ago or 15 or 20 years together. Something just changes. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, kids and mortgage are those things that <laughs> connect people and uh, do not let them divorce each other. Now to the presidential race in Russia. Yeah, uh, so, I am gonna leave for a second, go get a drink, and then I'll Sure, of course, you do. So even a week ago, there was literally nothing going on uh, with regards to the presidential race. And uh, Russian elections, presidential elections will, are supposed to happen in March this, of this year. Yeah, of course, some no-name candidates appeared, but no one really talked about them. Putin, in the meantime, has silently collected all the needed uh, signatures and became a candidate. A little reminder that Putin is not part of any political party. 
is not from the United Russia Party. And that means that he must collect 300,000 signatures in order to run for a president. And then, about a week ago, a new candidate appeared on stage, Boris Nadezhdin. He has a funny last name because Nadezhda in Russian it means hope. <laughs> Bob Hope. Uh, and I gotta say, I was not expecting any uh, hype around this Boris that he has uh, brought about. So, who is Mr. Nadezhdin? We will discuss it uh, in a minute. And before we do that, I want to remind you of a little podcast that I did with Andrei Martyanov. It was recorded in September of uh, 2023, and it turned into a kind of a debate. I insisted that a lot of Russians are not that enthusiastically pro-war or anti-war. The majority are pretty apathetic and don't care. But I also said that there is a sizable anti-war crowd, about 10% maybe, of the entire population. And uh, Marcianov denied uh, both of my statements, more or less, saying that it's just a small but loud group of soy zoomers. Now, with the Nadezhdin's hype, you can see what's up, because the sole program of Boris Nadezhdin, the guy that you probably heard about on some uh, Western media sites or wherever, is um, about pulling out from the Ukraine and uh, ending the special military operation with some magical peace negotiations. And uh, there are tens of thousands, at least, of very rabid fans of Boris Nadezhdin inside Russia that are very loud indeed. And uh, yeah, the guy has already collected hundreds of millions of rubles. So, millions of dollars in donations. Uh, yeah, his program is completely, well, retarded. But it's enough <laughs> for people to get excited. And uh, that's something that you should keep in mind. Um, and it's an interesting figure. And uh, we will, yeah, uh, try to an analyze uh, the, this uh, Boris Nadezhdin figure. So, um, he's an old guard Russian liberal. He was a member of the same party as Boris Nemtsov. Oh, oh guy. Ah. Uh, he was a member of every party. He was in <laughs> SPS, he was uh, in Yablaka, he was even in United Russia. Well, uh, he mm -hmm. advocated for primaries in United Russia in uh, 2012. So, a professional politician, a friend of uh, Nemtsov and uh, those uh, so-called right-wing forces. Because in the Russian 90s and 2000s, being right-wing was synonymous with two things, uh, being a Western-style liberal or being a skinhead. So <laughs> I guess <laughs> lips are the real racists, uh, after all. Uh, so uh, Nadezhdin. Nadezhdin is unremarkable. Uh, he was active for 30 years. No one really cared about the guy. He was constantly invited to, to TV talk shows where he expressed his milk toast lip talking points. Let's reunite with the West. Let's all be friends. Uh, Russia is not encircled by enemies, etc. And unlike his less fortunate friend Nemtsov, Boris Nadezhdin is still alive. 
And uh, the striking thing about him, besides his retarded platform and uh, talking points, is that he's not uh, off Putin and nasty. Even though I find, uh, well, I disagree with him. Uh, I don't feel, uh, I don't actually dislike the guy. Uh, and he's like a pretty comfy Jewish uh, old man, who, a Soviet physics college uh, graduate who likes to play Soviet bard songs. And he really is that, actually. So I get the appeal why he might be likable to some people, because he doesn't seem like a rabbit traitor, even though uh, his entire platform is uh, for Russia to stop special military operation and <laughs> return to Europe as if the Russian Federation was part I am, of Europe. I, I, I'm, I'm just skimming his Wikipedia page and you are right. He has literally been a member of every political party yeah. that there was in Russia, <laughs> except the communists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, it's, uh, he plays a very important role. Boris Nadezhdin does. Uh, I mean, to me, to me, what I've heard of him, I'm not, yeah. I don't know very much about him, but everything I've heard about him so far is that he's kind of, well, you have kind of two um, positions in Russian liberalism at this point. You have like the super populist Navalny variant of uh, liberalism, and you have the let's just become the American Democratic Party, liberalism of people like Maxim Katz. And uh, Nadezhdin seems to, to try to be like kind of centrist liberal, uh, basically a reasonable liberal who, um, yeah, is not immediately off-putting to a normal person on the street. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think it's uh, part of the Kremlin's plan. And uh, yeah, let's talk a bit about another candidate, Putin. So Putin is not an ideologue, no matter what uh, they say about him. The way I see it, Putin wants to become a new founding father of the Russian Federation. And he acts in accordance to his vision of the ideal future Russian Federation. He is a radical centrist and, uh, yeah, a former spook, as you know. He wants to build a... <laughs> Don't start laughing now, but he wants to build, I believe, a democratic Russia. That, but this uh, democracy is supposed to be controlled and limited. The intelligence agencies and Siloviki should wield a lot of power and get ample funding in Putin's ideal version of Russia. And but in order for parliament to be democratic the system needs to uh, needs uh, so-called uh, system liberals people that want to be friends with the west uh, but uh, are also integrated into the R russian state apparatus uh, all the bad apples uh, all the bad leaps that want to violently overthrow the state are weeded out by the siloviki uh, so a highly controlled democracy, kind of, uh, kind of like what we, <laughs> they have over in the West, really. Uh, so clearly, <laughs> Putin acts or sees himself as a crisis manager and again a founding father of a newly founded state. Because uh, Yeltsin years, we can't really consider Yeltsin to be a founding father of Russian Federation, right? So. The biggest contradiction in the Western narrative about Putin of, as a deranged dictator 
is that um, well if he really was a deranged dictator he would never maintain all those democratic institutions the parliament etc uh, and yeah uh, i think he uh, the, the their sole reason why uh, putin has served four presidential terms so far just like roosevelt served four terms albeit the last uh, term of roosevelt was incomplete but still because Russia is uh, going through an extraordinary phase, right? And, uh, well, uh, he initiated the SMO, which made things even more extraordinary. But even the formational period of uh, Russian Federation, uh, shaped and molded by Putin, in uh, it's also quite extraordinary he wants to build a system which is going to function after he's gone so to function like he intended it to function uh, so president serving two terms at the most six years each uh, term and for uh, to, for all this limited controlled democracy but democracy to work he needs people like Nadezhdin uh, because um, uh, nothing random is happening on that high of a level, of a political level in Russia. There cannot be a random anti-war candidate, which, is all, which also becomes pretty popular. Uh, it is an experiment by Kremlin. They do it to reintegrate liberals inside the internal political process in Russia, to bring them back from their Tbilisi ghettos and radical terrorist uh, pro-Ukrainian cells. And that's why they need Nadezhdin figure. And yeah, um, it's an experiment and it's also funny in a way. Uh, of course, he has no chances and he's in the process of collecting 300,000 uh, signatures. And uh, the funny part is that, uh, well, uh, he, uh, what are the signatures? He needs to... Uh, he can't just collect 300,000 signatures in Moscow. They need to be gathered from every single federal subject of Russia. And it's kind of like a database of all the people who <laughs> will be most actively anti-war, uh, who don't <laughs> not support a, a special military operation. So uh, it doesn't mean that they're going to be gulagged, but it's an extremely useful database for a Kremlin to have. So don't you agree with that? And uh, so, yeah, two parts. Uh, he wants to reintegrate uh, liberals to, because uh, they were always kind of uh, served some function in, in the Russian state prior to SMO. Of yeah, course, uh... yeah. For example, um, like spearheading unpopular economic reforms. Yeah, indeed. And Medvedev kind of started out as a, yeah, as a liberal, actually, as economic and uh, political liberal. So uh, Putin believes <laughs> that uh, there must uh, be some Russian liberal opposition in the government. And that's why they... They did not create, but they allowed Nadezhdin to function and to do what he does. Uh, his program is quite bad. As far as I know, it's simply, yeah, just that. Uh, l let me check his site one more. Yeah. Maybe well, well, his political program is kind of like like good things are good and bad things are bad. And we should yeah. 
and we should not do bad things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let me check it and uh, maybe, yeah, he, uh, so far he gathered uh, almost 200,000 signatures across Russia, which is not a trivial amount. And um, the only regions where he failed so far to collect the needed uh, signatures are mostly the ethnic republics, such as the Caucasian republics, uh, uh, some Finno-Ugric republics, some Siberian republics like Tiva, Hakasia, uh, but and Buryatia as well. Yes, and Altai. Uh, Belgorod does not want uh, Nadezhda to become a candidate for obvious reason because Belgorod is the most uh, region, the most affected by the war, and they. The, uh, they don't want uh, SMO to stop because they know what is, is it like. They actually lost their relatives and uh, they are experiencing uh, shelling by the Ukrainians from time to time. So they are not on board with this uh, pseudo-populist uh, pacifism of uh, this Nadezhdin figure. And Jewish Autonomous Oblast is not on board either <laughs> Ivanova is not on board uh, Kamchatka is not on board uh, so basically mostly rural places people uh, places that are most affected by war and uh, national republics and the far away places like Magadan and uh, the Jewish autonomous uh, autonomous oblast uh, still he is 66% true and I'm not an expert on the electoral, electoral process but I think he has good chances of becoming a candidate and without this guy there is no intrigue at all and there is no reason to even show up right and to vote for anyone because it benefits it obviously benefits uh, well Kremlin itself because uh, without some uh, semblance of an opposition there will no uh, people would not be voting at all and it's uh, actually the scariest thing because without reaching some uh, uh, some level of participation the elections would fail automatically so of course Nadezhdin is a integrated figure he and uh, he is allowed to function and he serves his function uh, that will benefit Kremlin in the end. So I'm not really worried about the man. I don't actually hate him. It's just part of the game. So any of you uh, want to share your thoughts about uh, Nadezhdin or the, the hype <laughs> that uh, maybe in Moscow it's uh, even more apparent, isn't it, Chad? I, I've never even heard of him. Like, 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 who even, oh, who even discusses the Russian presidential elections? Like, everyone knows how it's going to end. So, <laughs> but there are people who do it now, actually. So, uh, well, uh, yeah, I'm not making it up. Uh, and yeah, a lot of, uh, especially targets the runaway leaps in Belize and such, because and they are tempted to return to Russia to vote for Nadezhdin. It's a trick. It's a trick. So, yeah. Uh, it's probably yeah no use to to discuss his uh, policies because he doesn't have any he's not gonna be a president but still it's an entertaining and interesting 
Политтехнология. Political technology. Yeah, there is a while we're in the elections. So we can move on to the next news item because it's also about the presidential candidate. Um, namely, uh, Stilkov has been sentenced. Yeah. Is he still running for president? Um, well, he can't anymore, I think, since he's oh, been sentenced. You and can in America. <laughs> I think you... I'm not sure about president, but you can't run for... Maybe special, but you can't run for office if you've been sentenced to a crime, I think. So, yes, Stokov has been sentenced to four years for inciting extremism. And, uh, yeah, it's not a very harsh sentence, um, considering he has been in, in jail for half a year. And in Russia, one... Um, one day of uh, pre-trial detention counts as, uh, is it one and, a, one and a half or two? I think one and a half, right, Nikolai? Uh, uh, wait a second, what were you yeah. talking about? I was checking some um, things. One day in detention? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, one day in CISO counts as... Ah, uh, uh, one, uh, one and a half, one and a half. One yes. and a half, yeah, it counts as one and a half uh, days of the prison term, so that would be nine months of the prison term. So that would mean he has uh, three years and three months. And uh, that means that after one and a half years, he can um, uh, apply for um, parole. And I think chances are pretty good he'll get it. And uh, then he'll be out in one and a half years. And uh, yeah, his yeah. political career will be over forever. And uh, he will have learned that um, being ex-FSB is not an indulgence from everything. And yeah, so it's not pretty that this had to happen, but I also don't think it's like some huge uh, scandal or anything. I mean, he has really been trying very hard to get himself to prison. And um, it's... Uh, uh, the, the actual strange thing that it hasn't happened earlier, right? Um, so, yeah. What's your opinion on that? Well, I think it's um, kind of a mark of the uh, Putin age, I suppose you could say, that things in Russia tend to be allowed to go on for long enough to the point of where like you said, like it seems like something should have been done long ago so that there are maybe less questions or less doubts that it was the right decision. I'm not saying this was the right decision, but yeah, I think people are probably maybe a little bit less sympathetic uh, to Strokov now as, as compared to as if, for example, he had been ar arrested uh, like a year or a year and a half ago. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the same day, or the day after, yeah, the same day, uh, there was another prison sentence, as mentioned in the beginning of the stream, uh, Darya Trepova, the terrorist who murdered um, Vodlen Tatarsky and injured uh, some of them permanently, a bunch of other people at the cafe in St. Petersburg, has been sentenced to 27 years in prison, um, which is the longest prison sentence in the history of modern Russia that was given to a woman. Uh, Russian laws regarding prison sentences for women are very lax, 
and even like uh, Chechen terrorist women who killed more people or like the girlfriends of serial killers who helped them lure victims and things like that got uh, shorter prison sentences usually. Uh, I think the second longest prison sentence was 25 years or something like that. And uh, yeah, life sentences for women are not possible in Russian law. So that is the absolute maximum that she could have possibly gotten under current laws without any changes. Yeah. And still, there are some people to be found uh, that are defending her on Twitter, especially on the Russian liberal Twitter or morning. Uh, yeah, I mean, she hasn't even like, like she even in her uh, last word in, in the trial, she uh, did not show any um, remorse. Yeah, she did not really show any remorse. She, uh, she like she seems I don't know, kind of emotionally stunted or whatever, but definitely not repentant in any way. Um, she insists that she did not know that there was a bomb in the statue, despite there being material evidence of the fact that she knew. And yeah, so basically. She, yeah, unrepentant terrorist, and uh, she will spend longer in prison than her current age. She is 26, I believe, and she will spend 27 years in prison. Um, I think for her, like, it's uh, terrorism and murder, and for that, you can't apply for parole after half of the prison sentence, as usually, I think... Uh, he, she can only try to apply for parole after two-thirds of the prison sentence. Uh, so that means at least 18 years. So that is the absolute minimum she will That's spend in prison. Yeah, but probably the reaction of Americans who are used to 500 uh, sentences, <laughs> 500 uh, years of sentencing and, and death penalties for women as well, they think that it's a bit cocked, it's a bit uh, liberal, it's a bit soft. And it is, in a way, it is. But, um, yeah, it is what it I, is. I think the, the yeah. standard uh, prison sentence for murder in Russia is like 15 years, right? Yes, yes, yeah. 15 years is usually. Yeah, in the US it's usually 25 to life. Mm. Yeah, so... Uh, I will check some messages from you on donation alerts and reminder that there is an active donation goal and if we reach it, I will um, manually select the best era-defining songs, cinema pieces and other uh, cultural phenomenons and will showcase you in three uh, live streams that will happen next week on Monday, Wednesday and Friday. and. Uh, we're not only going to talk about, but it will be kind of a one-on-one uh, on modern, of modern Russian culture. And I'm sure it's going to be quite interesting. And I have some knowledge on the matter. Uh, so if you want me to make those three live stream a reality, then uh, send your donations and messages. And besides, you can send us a topic for discussion and, and questions of whatever kind you want and yeah 
So let me check the messages. Was the A50 sh shot down over the Sea of Azov claim by the Ukrainians fake news? Mm, well, they claimed both an IL-22 and an A50, right? And there has been it has been acknowledged that the IL-22 was damaged and uh, had to do an emergency landing. There were casualties among the crew. Uh, the plane is badly damaged, and that all has been uh, acknowledged officially. And there is proof of that. But there has been absolutely nothing on the A-50. Nothing. Not a single, like, no obituaries, no pictures of the plane, no video, no official statements. Uh, there is absolutely nothing. So the, like... I don't know. I have seen nothing that would indicate that an A-50 was shut down. Mm -hmm. Other but... than Ukrainian claims. Uh -huh. And, of course, uh, the usual uh, Zed uh, Vainkov whining that, <laughs> that, that always happens and always takes every Ukrainian claim for the truth. But, like, there is no actual... Um, Proof of anything regarding the A50. Sean sent us a question for chat. <coughs> Have you made any American food with your for your Russian friends? I've always thought Eastern NC style BBQ would go over well there. Smoked pork with col coleslaw and spiced apple vinegar sauce. Uh, so for the most part. Russians seem to like American food with two exceptions. Uh, the first is that they can't handle American, especially like Texan levels of spice. I would say that if you are cooking for a Russian or any kind of Slav, uh, use about 25% of your regular spice level. Uh, I've managed to get my wife up to about 50%. I've trained her in the art of Texan chili. Uh, but mm -hmm. but I still I still can't get her to uh, do a full spice level. Another another trick that I do is to add smetana or some other kind of dairy that helps with uh, them deal with the spiciness, and yeah. they enjoy smetana. Uh, another thing is that Russians don't like very sweet American food, or at least not having every single dish be sweet. So that, that's kind of the two things they can't handle is too much spiciness and too much sweetness. Uh, other than that, they, they seem to really enjoy uh, American cuisine. There's a few American cuisine restaurants in Moscow. There's even a Texas barbecue place in Moscow, which is uh, it's, it's legit. The guy that owned it uh, studied in the Czech part of, um, of Texas where, you know, sausage and barbecue and all that is real big. And I was I was very impressed by the the level quality. It was just like being back in Texas. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't like meat? <laughs> because uh, it's uh, it seems to be the main part uh, of the American cuisine. But yeah, spice ruins uh, a lot of dishes for me because uh, well, I, I don't feel anything but spiciness. Yeah, same. And I mean, yeah, it's just uh... yeah, it's spicy. And that's it. Uh, and uh, I guess it's genetic or something because, uh, yeah, my grandparents weren't even salting their food. They didn't <laughs> pepper the food. It was not, uh, yeah, it's it's funny, but yeah, we are not spicy people at all. And uh, <laughs> uh, we don't, yeah, the, the sweet stuff, uh, 
as well. So yeah, I guess Russian cuisine is pretty bland and sour. Well, naturally, right? Originally. <laughs> I've heard the sweetness thing before that uh, people who go to the US that it like uh, everything tastes as if it has a ton of sugar in it and like <laughs> literally everything. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it uh, does. Corn yeah. syrup, right? Yeah, yeah, the corn yes. syrup thing. Like yes. even the bread and things like that. Like oh, every bread tastes no. like cake and things like that. It, it it drove my wife nuts. We went to the US her first time in the US last year and I remember us in a grocery store looking for bread. We could not find one loaf of bread in the entire supermarket that did not have either sugar or some hmm. other crazy additive added to it. That's it was impossible. The worst. Yeah. Russians know a thing or two about bread. My little one already uh, he's crazy about bread. <laughs> it's it's the his favorite thing to chew on some uh, rye bread. And uh, yeah, I guess it's genetic for us. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually so didn't know that the Texan Texas barbecue is that spicy. I mean, I pro I never had like Texan barbecue, but uh, I would have assumed it's closer to like normal spice levels and not like uh, super spicy. Um, it's so I would say uses more like heavy uses of black pepper. I don't know. I'm not a huge barbecue expert, mm -hmm. um, but when it comes to, for example, chili, which is the national dish of Texas, yeah, uses a lot of chili pepper. And all my Russian friends have liked it, but I have to tone down the, the mm -hmm. spiciness by a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Very, very heavily peppered uh, sausages. It's, you know, classic te Texas style sausage. It's influenced from uh, Polish and Czech cuisine. There are a lot of, on uh, German as well, there are a lot of uh, Polish, Czech, and German uh, immigrants to central Texas. I guess what connects uh, Russian and American cuisine is the love of mayo and the sour cream as well, I guess. Okay, sour cream and smetana are two different things. Oh, yeah. And yeah, okay, so um, sour cream, I, I'm not even sure what the technical difference is. But it seems to me that it's just smetana. If smetana didn't taste good, like it's it's much lower what? in fat levels. I know you can get uh, smetana with uh, lower fat levels, but like when I go to the store, I always make sure to get at least twenty five percent fat, preferably yeah. like twenty five, twenty six percent. Yeah, sour cream is much less fatty than um, or American sour cream. It's much less fatty than smetana. I never liked sour cream mm. until I moved to Russia and started. Uh, Eating smetana. Well, then smetana is clearly superior because, yeah, who, who, is sour cream fat free or like has five percent fat? Yeah. I, I don't. I don't even know. I, I'm oh. sure you could probably find some oh. disgusting fat-free sour cream, but it's definitely <laughs> forget it. It's then. It's there's fat-free fat-free everything in America. It's awful. Um, but fat-free yogurt uh but i don't think i've actually met anyone from america that's tried smetana and said oh no sour cream is better they've all liked <laughs> smetana more that's cool well let me check some other messages uh, anonymous sent us thoughts on the recent uh, reporting that north korea has supplied russia with tactical ballistic missiles and iran is preparing <laughs> to do so as well you know what's really funny about that is uh, y'all know where North Korea got its its missiles from, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I don't think uh, <laughs> Yuzhmash. Yuzhmash. It's 
Yeah. It's kind of an open secret that uh, North Korea got its ballistic missile, missile technology from Ukraine yeah. in the 90s. Yeah, mm -hmm. the, <laughs> uh, it's like um, the, the so basically slightly unrelated, but also funny. Um, the He-55 missiles that uh, Russia is using as dummy missiles to um, blind or find uh, Ukrainian AD systems. Um, those were given to Russia in the late 90s or early 2000s uh, because they did not have the cash for to pay for gas. So they offered to give back old Soviet missiles and uh, these old Soviet missiles are now being returned to Ukraine. I also found very <laughs> funny. <laughs> uh, so yeah, regarding North Korean, I mean, the North Koreans do have some newer missile tech and the Iranians do have very good missile tech. They're uh, probably like in the top three worldwide when it comes to drone and missile tech. And um, there are, there will, every army in the world has some capability gaps. And for Russia, this would be like short to mid-range missile systems. Um, because at the lower end, we have the uh, things like this Merch, uh, the Tornado. But there are not that many Tornado systems, and especially the new Tornado S. Um, there are, it's still not being produced in the quantities that it have a big impact. And uh, I don't know if the... There were some quirks with the navigation system in the beginning of the war. I'm not sure if they have been completely resolved as of yet. Uh, so basically everything that is like 100, between 100 and 300 kilometer range, uh, we have a capability gap when it comes to missiles for this distance. And uh, so you have like the MLRS systems on the lower end. And then the next step is like Iskander's already. And uh, it would be very good to have uh, shorter range uh, ballistic missiles uh, that can do what we are currently using a bunch of Iskanders for. Because uh, Iskanders are, that's not what they're for, really. Mm -hmm. There is a message from Anonymous. Uh, would have expected more Russian airstrikes this winter by now, <laughs> especially against um, Ukrainian electrical infrastructure, which we haven't seen yet. Why do you think we still haven't seen heavy sustained bombardments? <clears throat> I don't know. I was hoping that uh, we'd go lights out mode uh, this winter as well. But uh, yeah, for some reason, we have not. I don't know. Uh, I would guess that if it's going to happen, it would happen in the last year of the war and not during the winter. I don't think the Kremlin wants uh, Ukraine to go through a winter without electricity and heating and whatnot. Well, it would have a very big impact on uh, battlefield logistics. Well, just my kind of gut feeling on this is that they would probably do it in preparation for the final big arrow offensive to put an end to the war that makes uh, sense yeah it didn't really work last time right well it did have um an effect right and i mean I'm, I'm, stuff but yeah. uh, it didn't really change much uh, other than uh worsen the situation in the Ukrainian rear but I guess it's not the top priority right now to do that 
and uh, maybe yeah <laughs> the russian military have saw, uh, found some humanity inside them stored deep inside so yeah I mean, it's probably that, like, that's the only reason not to do it, really, if you want to avoid civilian casualties, because obviously going lights out mode is, uh, would kill uh, very large amounts of civilians. Mm -hmm. Especially in winter. Another, I think that the, stri yeah. the strikes that they are, I think the strikes that they are doing are sort of to brings the Ukrainian grid to the brink so that whenever they finally do decide to take it out, it, it, don't, it just needs a little push, which, which seemed to be what they were doing during the those big strikes yeah. back when Surovikin, uh first came into power, is that it seemed like they were putting it right up to the edge, but not pushing it over to the point where the grid would collapse. That's, that was the impression that I got. I mean, it's also very hard to bring down the grid because it's... Uh... The Soviet power grid is uh, like I don't know a, a wonder of the world with with its ten billion redundancies and uh, despite lack of maintenance for thirty years, it's still working. And um, this, like like one guy with a rifle in the U.S. Uh, did more damage, I think, to the local power grid than like heavy missile strikes do in Ukraine. Are yeah, you talking true. about Texas now, or? Uh, that wasn't no. that. <laughs> well, t it's kind of interesting because Texas has its own uh, power grid, but I don't think that, think that has ever happened in Texas. But in other states like uh, California, yes, there have been guys, just like uh, three or four guys with AR-15s or Kalashnikovs, just walk up to a power station and fill it with lead and walk away, and millions of people lose power. There was a funny message that I missed uh, at the start of the show. Anonymous sent us, Mr. Putin, I'm a poor eight-year-old child from Texas. Joe Biden <laughs> is oppressing us. Please carpet bomb DC. And uh, we will get to discuss that in a second because it seems to me that it's a big news. Uh, something is going on in Texas. I'm not sure what. I'm not following that at all. But maybe chat uh, as a texan native uh, has some opinion on that uh, well maybe sh we should do it now what do you think what's happening can you enlighten me um this is kind of funny because nobody in the us is talking about this oh, aside from like a few people on twitter no it's it's all it's, it's almost everyone that has talked to me about this has been russian like it's it seems like it's the the new big um, news item in Russia. Like it's it's like everyone on Russian Telegram has forgotten about Ukraine, and they're all talking about uh, Texan People's Republic now, uh, including Medvedev is mm. giving support to Texas. So what's happening um, is that there is a conflict between Texas and the federal government. The federal government wants essentially unlimited migration over from the Mexican border into Texas. And the governor of Texas has ordered the either the Texas National Guard or the Texas State Guard, which is uh, sort of Texas own. The states in America all have their own little mini militaries, essentially. And he's ordered them to shut the border using razor wire and other obstacles. And um, other states have come in support of Texas and are sending their own 
National Guard and other law enforcement resources to Texas. So this this is a very big constitutional crisis because it is a conflict between who, who has uh, sovereignty or authority here, the state or the federal government. Uh, the last time something like this happened, a civil war broke out. So you'd think this would be big news, but there is, from the Americans that I've talked to, a complete media blackout. Nobody's talking to this. Um, right before the podcast started, I talked on the phone with my mother, who lives not in Texas, but in a northern state, and she had no idea that this was happening. Uh, it's, 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 just, it's, very, it's, it's a very strange feeling to have to get news about uh, Texas from from Russians. It's, it, it, it's it, it, I, I like I, I feel like the, those those people in the, the, the Soviet Union that uh, stopped reading Pravda and had those like those little you know secret radios to get news from the yeah. West or something. It's 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 just so absurd. It's, it's hard to comprehend. Uh, Twitter has just put a tweet on my timeline, uh, a Tucker Carlson tweet. He says, in an interview from India, Governor Greg Abbott says, 10 other states have sent National Guard to the Texas border and others will follow. Abbott says he's prepared for a conflict with federal authorities. Mm -hmm. That's wild. Yeah, that sounds pretty interesting. I mean, I am sort of my instinct tells me it's my gut feeling says uh, to be on uh, the nothing happens side here. Yeah, Um, that's my gut feeling um, because I don't know. It uh, seems like just in the end, the federal government will just do nothing and pretend that nothing happened and. I mean, I'm not sure Texas has the resources to fortify the whole border. And it's it's like one place or a few places, like Eagle Pass or whatever. And uh, probably like the migrant caravans will just reroute and go somewhere. Or, like they, I don't think Texas has the resources to cover the whole border. And uh, things will, and Abbott will declare victory, and uh, Biden will pretend that nothing happened, and uh, then yeah, everyone will forget about this in two months. That would be my uh, gut feeling, guess, based on nothing really other than my instincts. But enough about America. We will see what's going, uh, what will happen. Anonymous sent us an interesting question: What did Strelkov do to deserve prison time? Examples. You seem dismissive of ending political careers and prison time in the face of free speech. Wasn't he pro-SMO, pro-Russia? Seems like a hit. Um, yeah, well, there is some dismissiveness, of course, but um, how do I put it? Well, yeah, you, you go ahead. You were the most dismissive person. <laughs> okay, um, so yeah, first of all, yeah, free speech, I mean, it. it's an American thing. No other place in the world has free speech laws. It, it is what it is. I am sort of in favor of free speech laws myself, but it's just not a reality. Isn't there a free speech the uh, well, amendment in the... Not an amendment, but isn't it uh, guaranteed by Russian constitution? Uh, every uh, <laughs> republic in the world has uh, that in its constitution, oh. but also li- but also puts limits on it. And uh, like America is the only country that actually has uh, 
almost no limits on free speech, at least in legal terms. I think Japan is pretty close as well. But okay, they had they, cool. they had their constitution literally written by an American general during the occupation. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so basically, um, the criminal article that uh, Stilkov was sentenced for is uh, two hundred eighty, part two, uh, public calls to carry out extremist activities, and uh, the part two means that it's the same acts committed with the use of mass media or, or information telecommunication networks, including the internet. Uh, so basically, he was sentenced for calling for extremist acts on the internet. Um, Do we know what the extremists? I am. I am not exactly sure uh, which posts exactly he was um, indicted for, but uh, according to the information that came out at the time, the um, guy who. Uh, actually um, pressed charges against him uh, or brought up the charges was a Wagner guy. Uh, <laughs> so it's, uh, and as you know, Strokov was uh, extremely anti-Wagner and anti-Prigozhin for a very long time and very dismissive of uh, what they, of their achievements in the SMO and uh, publicly called for uh, like disbanding Wagner and so on. And uh, yeah, I mean, he had a bunch. Uh, if you if we are being real, then if we just look at what the law says, then Strilkov, since February uh, twenty two, would have been arrested a hundred times over, because he has constantly been calling for executing people, imprisoning people, um, basically for military insubordination, insurrection, whatever. I uh, don't didn't prepare any post of his to quote, but um, really, um, the there was enough there to like uh, put him in prison without uh, moving into the extrajudicial realm. So yeah. Well, in a perfect world, I would be against that, but. Considering that his uh, frenemy Prigozhin died in a plane crash, and uh, all the uh, Strelkov has to do is uh, probably two years of prison time, well, it's very gentle, really. And he was walking the very thin line, and uh, yeah, well, considering the situation being the. Um, loudest voice of dissent uh, from the quote-unquote patriot side and at the same time being the uh, darling of the Ukrainian media uh, well something uh, it was not out of <laughs> thin air I mean, I, I mean it's yeah. interesting because I would have expected uh, that he would be sentenced according to another law namely that about discrediting the armed forces of Russia yeah that would be more logical because uh, well, yeah, I don't remember the cult, uh, the extremism in, well, what kind of extremist I mean, he did, calls? He, he, he did call for Shoigu and Gerasimov to be executed. Ah. <laughs> I did not know that. Um, <laughs> did he call them Shoigu and Gerasimov or used some nicknames? or? I don't remember, I don't such? remember, but uh, yeah. 
Well, yeah, two years it in prison for Strelkov, uh, yeah, it's not... The I mean, I, I, I don't think he should be, like, in prison. In my personal opinion is that he should uh, be banned from the internet and uh, be forcefully sent to some sanatorium in the Caucasus and spent a few months, uh, like, uh, going swimming in warm springs and, and looking at mountains and drinking wine and uh, stuff like that. And, uh, and going to the sauna, and uh, that would be much more uh, useful than putting him in prison. Uh, uh, there, there, there is one useful way he could get out of prison. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he could volunteer for the uh, Storm Z detachment. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, there are a lot of unanswered messages from you guys, uh, our oh, listeners. Okay. So uh, let me read them anonymous how do the russian identify targets for this lone range missile and drone strikes any evidence you have seen on what exactly has been hit in these past few powerful air strikes um well regarding how they choose targets um they're not gonna tell us <laughs> how exactly they choose targets i i mean a lot of it is comes from um uh informants basically like local people who just see something and then send that information to the russian armed forces and, and some uh, of the older targets like soviet made well they have the coordinates of them yeah i guess for... I, I guess they, they they probably have a list of like ten thousand targets in ukraine with every um like ammunition depot every barracks and every every other military installation that is in ukraine and uh i can't tell you the uh, process like what the pr priorities are like and um there have been indicators that uh, the intelligence is pretty good um like uh, hitting missile stashes of newly delivered stuff uh, and things like that and uh, there is rarely hard proof of what exactly is it uh, usually we can just tell by secondary effects like for example i don't know um let's say there is news that the Ukrainians get like a bunch of Storm Shadow missiles, and then there are like three or four successful Storm Shadow strikes by the Ukrainians. And then Russia hits some airport, some airbase, and then Storm Shadow missile strikes suddenly stop for like three months. And uh, after it has been reported that they hit the warehouse where they stored Storm Shadow missiles. And by that, we can uh, deduce that they did, in fact, hit a warehouse with Tom Shadow missiles. But there is very rarely, like, uh, hard proof of this stuff well, because... It's illegal for the Ukrainian civilians yeah, of to course. film any uh, missile strikes in their of area. Of course, of course. They will be immediately imprisoned. Uh, so, yeah, that's... Uh, what Ukraine yeah. has for free speech so uh, yeah and in the, at the start of the war all the ukrainians were constantly filming everything and it was easier to yeah uh, to find uh, proofs of what exactly was hit by the airstrikes now it's a bit trickier but there are ways and all right uh henry henry sent us uh, I am celebrating my Russian visa approval and my upcoming return to Russia. 
Lake Baikal is undoubtedly the greatest natural feature on this planet, and everyone who loves Russia has a duty to see it. Well, thank you, Henry, and I agree with you completely. And I will do it probably next year. Um, Anonymous, it's kind of black peeling if the Patriot has indeed been used to shoot down a bunch of uh, VKS planes. That would mean... I mean its I mean, uh, provision to Ukraine has actually made somewhat of a difference. I mean, obviously, the weapon deliveries to Ukraine have made a gigantic difference because otherwise the Ukrainian yeah. army would simply have, like the Ukrainian army that existed in February, like the military inventory of the Ukrainian army of February 2022, basically doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and it would not be combat capable if not for uh, Western arms deliveries. And uh, there are some indicators that a bunch of stuff that has never been uh, officially said uh, had also been sent, uh, like, for example, uh, I seriously doubt that there are a lot of MiG-29 planes left anywhere in Eastern Europe. Um, most of those seem to have been sent to Ukraine. There are satellite pictures of emptied out S-300, S-200 positions all over uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, that uh, most likely have also been sent to Ukraine, but that have never been declared. So you can assume that there is not much uh, old Soviet uh, military technology in Eastern Europe anymore. And yes, for the Western stuff, I mean, why is it blackpilling? It's it's war. Uh, we are at war with... Um, it's somewhere between a proxy war and a hot war. And... Um, it is what it is. Like, I don't know why that would be especially blackpilling. Maybe they're from a Western country that's never had to fight in recent times against a country that can fight back. That's This is what it looks like when a country can fight back. Planes will get shot down. It's yeah. part, of, part of war. Uh, the, the plane inventory thing is interesting. I've been kind of mystified about it for a while, and it didn't really click for me for now, because even though Ukraine had the biggest army in Europe, I, I did a bunch of totaling up. They had the smallest air force of the major militaries in Europe. And on the very first day, Russia took out a bunch of planes on the ground, something like, uh, I think the, I think they had something like 60 fighter planes. I, I think an estimated 20 were shot, not, not even shot down, just destroyed on the ground in the first day. And if you add up all of the uh, Ukrainian Jets shot down since the start of the war. You know the the air to air, to air and uh, ground to air kills. They would have almost no planes left. Yet they are still regularly regularly uh, flying sorties with with MIGs, and they, they have to come from some. They're not acting like they only have one or two planes left. So I think the explanation that they've been secretly getting deliveries from other Eastern Bloc countries is. It's it's the most logical explanation for what's going on. Well, it's not a secret, right? I think they were doing. I mean, that. officially there have been very little delivered. Mm. Officially, it was only like I don't know, fifteen or so. But it's probably all of them because why yeah. does uh, Slovakia or whatever Czech Republic need all those mix for? Yeah, of yeah. course. Uh, Anonymous sent us without Strelkov and the Donbass uprising. Would the special military operation have happened? Imprisonment looks back, uh, bad, <laughs> be, uh, him being a war hero, and since his political career now is over, was he a real threat to Putin? 
Well, the first question without Strelkov and the Donbass uprising, would the special military operation happen? Even happen? Uh, well, um, I think that without Strelkov, the Donbass uprising would have happened in any case. Of I mean, it did he, happen without Strelkov. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, uh, of course, he. Um, uh, Increased the scale, the, his incursion. In the, the there is a and, yeah. there is a good chance that uh, none of the Donbas would have been completely outside of Ukrainian military control without Stilkov organizing the militias. So basically, it would have been just uh, I don't know, like a low-level insurgency, and a bunch of people would have uh, just gotten killed without ever getting a chance to grab a rifle. Then, and regarding yeah. the and regarding the threat to Putin thing, you have to understand that uh, Strelkov um, acted in a way that is um, uh, it's it's an observation that has been made many times over the decades uh, by many people in a lot of different contexts. But basically, Putin really, really hates when people try to force his hand in any way, shape, or form. Uh, doesn't matter how small the, the matter at hand is, uh, Putin absolutely despises having uh, someone try to force his hand, and he then refuses to act out of principle. And that is exactly what Strelkov was doing. Uh, Strelkov uh, did actually surrender um, territory in the Donbass, without military necessity to bring the conflict closer to the Russian border and uh, to basically create facts on the ground that the Russian government wouldn't have been able to ignore and to, I force, think that's and to force Russia to intervene. I mean, I've, it, yes, it is debated, but um, I do believe this. I have uh, spoken to people who were involved in those things and they have confirmed it to me that this is basically what happened. That it was a deliberate strategy of Stilkov to uh, try to get uh, Russia as involved as possible and to bring the fight as close to Russia as possible. Well, I think, I think it was both. Um, I mean, maybe I'm wrong here, but it really does seem that Slavyansk was in, in Kramatorsk were in serious danger of being encircled. If they had been, they would have lost their largest militia. Uh, but at the same time... Slavyansk, well, okay, yes. Slavyansk, yes. But for example, uh, Gorlovka, not. Uh, Gorlovka oh. was held by Bies, and uh, Bies ignored Stilkov's order to retreat from Gorlovka. He had been ordered by Strelkov to pull back, to leave, completely leave Gorlovka. And he ignored that order and held the town. And it was, it spent eight years under DPR control subsequently. Yeah, no, that, that part I don't, I don't disagree with. I've read that as well from guys that were in the DPR mm -hmm. militias that Strelkov was constantly ordering retreats and he specifically wanted to go to a small village called Snezhnaya which yeah. is near mm -hmm. Sour Megillah. It's very close mm -hmm. to the Russian border, about maybe 15 miles or mm -hmm. so. And that uh, the fighting would spill over into Rostov Oblast from, from there. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, while, I, I mean, I'm not saying that it was like immoral or 
uh, a priori wrong of Stilkov to try the strategy. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that uh, this is exactly the kind of thing that the Kremlin really, really <coughs> hates. And uh, so, yeah, it is not surprising that he um, did not become the hero he aspired to be. And the latest message so far. Um, is the Ukraine funding holdup in the US, EU just political theater or indicative of a material shift in sentiment against Ukraine? I tend more towards that it's political theater and that they will uh, still push through the funding unless uh, like unless a serious civil war breaks out in the US or something. <laughs> yeah, because Israeli conf conflict is a bit stale now and Israel doesn't seem to require all that much uh, material support, right? And uh... I mean they are uh, Israel is eating up a lot of the of American bomb stocks and such. Hmm. I think the financial support is a good chance that it will continue. But I think the material support is maybe not going to come to an end, but it will come to a trickle simply because it's not there anymore. A lot of people don't realize this, but uh, the U.S. got rid of a lot of its Cold War era stocks. It's it's not it's not like Russia. It's 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 gone. Those those warehouses are empty, and stuff like artillery shell production is at a, it's it's like a tiny fraction of what Russia can produce for cruise missiles. It's 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 almost nothing. It's it's a, a lot of people don't realize what the state of the American military is in, and this is it's this is a straight up attritional warfare. Uh, the U.S. is, I, I don't think they're going to completely empty out their stocks. There is some limit that they have that they're going uh, to keep. Like, just as we know that we know the Russia is not going to empty its stock of cruise missiles against Ukraine. They're going to keep a reserve in case just in the 1% chance that there's a hot war against NATO or something like that, right? So, I don't know. It, it just seems to me that uh, maybe that's there at the the end of their capabilities to keep their stocks above bare minimum. And, uh, and Israel is just a good excuse uh, to stop, you know, to stop sending it to Ukraine or, 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 or the funding people just getting, uh, it's to save face essentially, because the biggest danger would be for the sharks in the water to smell blood, which is happening anyway. But admitting that there is no ammo left would make things worse. Yeah, of course, of course, there's also like a practical limit to uh, what they can send and uh, stuff that makes sense to send versus uh, not, does not make, like it's not going to do anything if uh, America sends uh, 500 Abrams tanks to Ukraine. It's, 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 it's not going to, it's not going to create the logistics out of thin air and uh, it's just going to create big Abrams uh, graveyards. <laughs> and uh, not too much uh, but uh, yeah especially artillery shell production is um complicated question yes and we have a new guest a fan of soviet oh. sci-fi vini hello should i call you that <laughs> and can you hear me all right 
I can't hear you though. So yeah. Uh, go look at the mic settings. Uh, yeah. Meanwhile, although there was some noise, uh, we wanted to discuss um, Soviet sci-fi uh, at the end of our live stream and maybe some other cultural topics. We will see about that if uh, our guest's uh, mic will start working. <laughs> Meanwhile, there was a funny message in the chat. Um, I heard Ukraine is moving its capital to Lvov. Is that true? <laughs> mm, I have not heard about that, but... Uh, I mean, it's kind depend. of like admitting defeat in a way, right? Because, yeah, uh, I mean, it makes no sense right now. I mean, they did put everything in Lvov at the beginning of the war. Depending on how the war goes, the Ukrainian capital will be in, um, I don't know, some some uh, office on the third floor of some EU building in Brussels or something. <laughs> can you hear us? Can you? Uh, I can hear you. Sorry about that. No problem. So, uh, yeah, we wanted to discuss um, Soviet sci-fi and Russian sci-fi and um, uh, Strugatsky Brothers, Stalker, the movie, the book, uh, and even video games. Uh, the modern writer Glukhovsky, author of the Metro series, and Pelevin. So let's start with this question. What led you to discover Russian sci-fi in the first place? Well, I'm a, a little bit of a dog, um, especially for... <laughs> Things, uh, for Russia. I've, ever since I've been a little boy, I've been kind of obsessed with with Russia, and um, I've loved Russian literature and whatnot, and I've enjoyed sci-fi in general. So I picked it up in high school. It was Metro 2033 was my first one uh, when the game came out, and that was kind of like the defining book of my high school time in high school. Um, and from there, I've sort of grown up a little bit and read more grown-up books like the Strugatsky Brothers. Um, but I, I started off with, with Metro and, and the computer game and all that. Yeah, Metro. Well, uh, let's start with Strugatsky Brothers. I'm kind of familiar with their story and uh, one of their books that I have read when I was a child. Although their books are not very children-friendly, but that particular book was about children. Uh, about the school for uh, kind of indigo children. L let me check uh, what was its title. Um, wait. So, so basically about the brothers. There were two brothers, uh, and they were kind of different. One, one of them, the older uh, Arkady, was uh, a communist. And uh, in later life, he became an alcoholic. And uh, his uh, younger brother, Boris, actually, Boris, it's not uh, a Jewish name, but uh, like half of uh, Soviet Jews were named Boris. And yeah, they're, they're both Jewish, but it doesn't uh, really matter. His younger bro brother was uh, more of a liberal reformist type. So by the end of their lives, uh, they were a bit in a, in a feud or misunderstanding uh, with regards to social and political stuff. But still, they were writing uh, all their books together, which is quite, uh, yeah, uh, quite unique, right? Because uh, they're yeah, not it's, it's that uncommon. many. 
yeah brothers who they would uh, one would write the first sentence the other would write the second sentence it's a bit weird so what uh, in what way do you think i'm not an expert on strugatsky at all i haven't had really time to refresh my memory so what are the main difference between western sci-fi and soviet sci-fi and what would you recommend from strugatsky brothers to read so uh, I don't know if this is just because I'm a decadent Western pig, but uh, Russian sci-fi to me, there's an extra level of alienness to it because of it's because it's from the east. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if it, it just feels a bit cleverer to me or or or, or what the difference is. The Strugatsky brothers particularly are interesting. Um, I don't know if anybody else has had this observation, but their earlier works written in the in the late 50s and in the early 60s uh, were sort of utopian they had uh, they had their own extended cinematic marvel universe uh it's called the noon universe in english i don't know um i don't know what the russian name was oh world of noon okay, um uh which was utopian there was the earth had, a, had achieved its socialist um ends and, and nobody wants for anything and then all the stories take place elsewhere where, where, they, where there is strife but later on and i'm thinking specifically of the book the doomed city have you read that one which one uh, the doomed city uh no, I, I have not read much of that like i have uh, uh, yeah i was almost... going i was going to counter signal here because i I've never been a huge fan of uh, Soviet or Russian sci-fi. Really, I, it's something I could never really get into. And uh, <laughs> as such, I would uh, I prepare to be the counter signal, the ignorant counter signaling voice here. <laughs> oh no, no, not more ignorance. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, so the Doom City, uh, the, the copy I have has a foreword by Dmitry Glukovsky, who I have learned very recently is uh, the terrible liberal. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's 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 really because I really liked them at the Metro books, and um... I really liked the first two. I fucking hated the end of the. Sorry, can I swear? I yeah. really hated the end of uh, thirty-five. Uh, we'll, we'll, when we get to that, I'll, I'll yeah, talk. I, about I, th- I think I haven't read that one actually. I think I've only read the uh, first. Well, two. I'm going to spoil it for you because I'm <laughs> furious about it. Um, so the the Doom City um, had a foreword by by Glukowski where he talks about how in the Soviet Union everything was promised like you had something to look forward to uh, but you never had anything at the time so we're working towards not wanting anything but until then getting the breadline sort of thing um and the doom city was written in 1972 they didn't publish it because they were worried about censors um how dangerous was it for artists during the soviet union to be critical of the soviet government was it that dangerous or was it um is it sort of overblown well uh it really depends i mean it it depends it depends because um um usually uh it's it's really very complicated because of course outright um like outright criticism was uh, dangerous and uh, you would simply not get published and would only be able to get your stuff circulating through some is that uh illegal prints uh illegal prints and so on uh spreading by word of mouth but uh, if you 
it is generally a rule that censorship kind of may forces people to be more creative in a way. Uh, you saw this especially like in the Russian Empire, but also in some ways in the Soviet Union as well, uh, that uh, people simply... Uh, there was heavy selection for writers who were not uh, the smart sort of dissident that would uh, be able to couch their criticism of the Soviet government in 10 layers of allegory that the stupid censors would not get. Um, the selection pressures were very much the opposite, that uh, a lot of it was uh, uh, pretty stupid or uh, midwit people um, who would uh, have their egos stroked by becoming uh, regime-approved uh, uh, writers. And But still, of course, you had sometimes, you had people who would be able to, look like, um, I don't know, Platonov, for example. Um, Andrei Platonov uh, was pretty good at that. Although he was more in the early USSR, uh, like until Stalin's death. But yes, uh, it was possible to put out critical things, but mostly it would have been in the sense of um, uh, how to put it, you know, how um, people would like uh, write letters to the Pravda under Stalin and uh, complain that the Encavadea was not arresting enough enemies of the people. Right. And uh, so this sort of criticism, really. <laughs> um, are you guys familiar with the, uh, I don't know how uh, well-known it was in Russia, um, the Menezh affair, uh, where Khrushchev lost his mind on, in 1962? If I send you uh, the, what he, his little breakdown, what he said in his little breakdown, Nikolai, would you be able to read it out? Uh, I'm sorry, uh, do you want to send me something on Telegram? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah I, don't know sure. if you do, I, I don't know if you do a good uh, Khrushchev impression. <laughs> <laughs> me neither. Well, <laughs> I, I'm not sure, uh, yeah. Uh, did he spoke with Ukrainian accent or no? <laughs> he was just shouting a lot. Uh, so I should read was, out this. He quote, sounded right? a bit stupid. He sounded a bit. Don't stupid. you know how to paint? My grandson will paint it better. What is this? Are you men or damned pederasts? How can you paint like <laughs> that? Do you have a conscience? That's it, Bilutin. I'm telling you, as the chairman of the Council of Ministers, the Soviet people doesn't need all this. I'm telling you, forbid, prohibit everything. Stop this mess. I order, I say, and check everything on the radio, on television, and in print. Uproot all sympathizers <laughs> of this. Yeah, I remember this. It was uh, like a modern art gallery or something. Yeah. And, yeah he lost his marbles because um yeah oh did he really say that yeah he did he did i remember oh, I, heard that. I, thought that <laughs> I thought that was a parody of Khrushchev. no 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 he did said uh well uh of course khrushchev is the greatest reformer of the ussr and uh, the the khrushchev's toe um allowed many artists to uh, to be in line with the the western contemporaries of the time and uh it's, uh, but it was not, uh, the Khrushchev was not pleased. His uh, sensibilities of a rural uh, Ukrainian man, although he was not originally Ukrainian, but he kind of became one uh, in the process of growing up, were not pleased. And he decided to roll back a bit on the 
modernization and the freedom of artists. But still, he made uh, a lot of uh, no, well, uh, a lot of books and movies possible. So there is something, some merit to his rule. And I remembered the the book by Strugatskis, who were especially the younger Strugatsky uh, critics of the USSR, uh, uh, but mild critics. So I remember the name of the book that I read, The Ugly Swans. Uh, so it's a kind of a weird book, maybe. <laughs> maybe all of, all of them are weird, I'm not sure. Uh, uh, so the plot is this. Uh, it happens in the author authoritarian country, in, uh, in an unnamed town, and uh, a famous writer who is also a heavy drinker. So it's basically about them in USSR, right? Um, he comes to the capital city, uh, to, where the rain never stops and there were strange events uh, uh, weird leper people uh, suffering from uh, yellow leprosy and and uh, a school for indigo children but I'm not sure if it, it, it kind of left some impression on me but I was not I did not become a fan really so I was not really familiar with their other works. Uh, I know that um, because of the um, movie by Tarkovsky, uh, that was probably the most popular uh, movie portrayal of their work. Uh, for example, my mom uh, loves uh, uh, the movie Stalker. And I still haven't watched it. I, I'm kind of uh, leaving it as a gift for myself. I'm not sure. Have, I been, uh, have any of you watched uh, Stalker? Do you like it? Yeah, yeah, I have. I have. It is uh, one of my favorite Tarkovsky movies. And uh, it's a very fantastic movie. I have also read uh, uh, Roadside Picnic. Uh, it's, it's very loosely based on the book. It's, uh, it's uh, a thing of its own. But... Um, Although I think the screenplay had, was also written by the Strugatsky brothers, but it is quite different from the book. Mm -hmm. And uh, I must say the book did not make a huge impression on me when I read it, but the movie did very much so. Was the book very popular in, in Russia at the time? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, it was published uh, 20 years before I was born, so <laughs> I can't really tell you how popular it was when it came out. <laughs> Uh, does it have a lasting cultural impact in the same way as the film? Um, is is the film regarded as... Because in the West, we fucking love Stalker. We think it's... Yeah, yeah. I think it had a big cultural impact. Um, I mean, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Metro is uh, also very heavily oh, yeah, um, very heavily. hired by uh, Stalker. The Stalker video games, of course. It's, it's, uh, here, it's a cultural mainstay in modern Russian culture. And uh, so, yeah, I would say it had a quite big in impact. Yeah. Although the book is obviously not about the Chernobyl's ex exclusion yeah. zone and all yeah. that radiation monsters. But well, it it's it has its exclusion zones. It's not because yeah, of but any... not the Chernobyl one. Yeah. No, yeah, it's, yeah. it's aliens. Of course, it was written for fifteen years before the Chernobyl stuff happened. Yeah. He predicted Chernobyl. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so my favorite Strugatsky book um, is, is, I don't know if it's a comedy, it's funny. Um, it's Monday Begins on Saturday. 
Uh, are you are you familiar with that one? Well, yeah, we are, mm, we're we're ignorant. Yeah, <laughs> I I've, I've heard of it. I I I've yeah, heard of it, but I haven't read I've it. I've heard of it too. I think it's like a peak of uh, the Soviet dissident humor, and uh, it's like a satirical critique, a satire on the Soviet Union or, or some such. And it felt it was, quite yeah. loving as a satire or as a criticism. Um, like the the policeman in it is is bumbling, but he's not vicious. Mm. Um, Pushkin, uh, the learned cat from Pushkin's Ruslan and Lyudmila, uh, Milia. Sorry, I'm I'm not very good. Lyudmila, yes. Um, the, you know, the cat from that shows up as uh, sort of a drunken bard. Baba Yaga appears, and it. it's it's very entertaining. Um, it has a lot of folk stuff in it. Uh, which Palavin, I think, liked to play with as well. But we'll get on to Palavin. Yeah. Um, would you like to talk about about Metro? Metro. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. Glukowski, you you said it a bit ambiguously, and some of the listeners might have heard uh, not Dmitry Glukowski, but Dmitry Galkowski, and th <laughs> those people are different. <laughs> those yeah, people no, are not uh, the same. Uh, oh, so yeah, Glukowski is a. Yeah. Is a uh has become a turbo traitor liberal is, uh... he has and it's very disappointing because yeah, i it is, really it enjoyed is. 2033 it is me too um but i think so <clears throat> does anybody have a problem with me spoiling the third book in the series no no you can no. Okay. No. so it turns out at the end of the book that every faction in the metro is controlled by the russian government and the reason for this is the Russian government figured that Russians as a people are so barbaric and warlike, they have to have contained wars, otherwise they'll just destroy themselves if left to their own devices. Yeah. That, that's... Very deep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had, I had deep to I put the book down and just put my head in my hands. I was like, that feels racist, but I don't oh, know. There are many well Russians who are incredibly genocidally racist against other Russians, and yeah. <laughs> it's some <laughs> yeah we call them Ukrainians. <laughs> and Glukovsky kind of yeah transformed into one, and um, it's not a coincidence maybe that Metro games were uh, well created by the Ukrainian firms. Um, so although who, although yeah. although um, there is a military unit in the Russian armed forces <laughs> that is uh, inspired by a faction from Metro Twenty Thirty Three. There certainly is. I have one of their patches up on my wall. <laughs> yes, Klukovsky's legacy will live on in the Sparta Battalion. How yeah. ironic! Um, it, it's my mild aggression, but I think it's very funny. Like how in a hundred years or so, um, like. People in Russia, like uh, teenagers, will be uh, seeing some, I don't know, parade on TV, a military parade on TV, and they will be wondering what the hell this Sparta thing is, and and why there is a military unit called Sparta, and and uh, like Somalia and things like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so sorry, Nikolai, go on. Yeah, uh, just for those who are unaware of what we are talking about, a uh, Metro twenty thirty three. I think uh, it was the first book in the series uh, by Gluchowski. Uh, it was about the post-nuclear war Moscow and where people are hiding in metro system and the subway uh, and uh, they are divided into factions, into warring 
factions. I, I don't really know much more than that, but uh, and it was incredibly popular in the 2000s among teenagers, of course. Uh, it's a fun concept, right? Because every uh, person who lives in Moscow or has ever been to Moscow uh, knows that the Moscow subway system is a world on its own. And uh, <coughs> it's funny to imagine, right, the, the post-nuclear scenario with all these gangs and, uh, I guess, uh, defunct uh, uh, trains. Uh, I'm not sure how they're working, or is, are people going by foot in those metro books? They've got uh, hand carts, uh, sort of old-fashioned. Ah, I see. Uh, yeah, hand yeah. Carts. I wonder. I wonder if the uh, I haven't played the games in a long time, but I wonder how the the train tracks kind of correlate to the real world metro map. Uh, I've I've a little story. I think I might have fallen into Metro Two uh, a few months ago. Did I tell you about that, Kiddo? Uh, I don't think so. That's yeah, me. yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't, I, don't I, I, I still don't know what happened. I was um, <laughs> in the, I was in the metro, and I was just sitting on my phone listening to music. And at one point, I look up, and um, everyone on the train is gone. I'm the only person in the train, and it's in like an exceptionally dark tunnel. And suddenly, the train is just like wiggling around more violently than usual. And then there are other trains around, and the train just stops, and like not at a station, just in like this weird depot for trains. And I look into the other cars, and there is one other man sitting at another car, just sitting reading a book and looking completely unperturbed. And I'm sending out messages and Telegram and Twitter, help me! I'm in I'm in Metro Two or something. I don't know where I am. I'm completely lost. And eventually, the the the, the train got moving again. And it came out on an entirely different line. <laughs> on a station. Oh. I, I still don't know what happened. But yes, yeah, well, there is well, always full of mysteries. Yes. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. there are there are defunct or uh, regular tunnels that are not in use. That uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you uh, went into Metro 2. Uh, so yeah, for, yeah, I, for those who don't know, uh, Metro 2 it's uh it's not an official name it's uh it's uh, basically the name for a secret uh underground metro system which runs parallel or under the normal uh, subway system in moscow and uh, was supposedly uh run by the kgb and um basically existed to um in case of any um, calamities uh, falling on, on Moscow, such as nuclear war or anything else that uh, would be a way to uh, keep communications going and get important people out of Moscow. So, yeah. Do we know if it's real or not? Um, it is most likely real, but embellished, as far as I understand. Um, probably just like one or two lines. Yeah, probably, probably. I think so. Yeah, the the FSB haven't said anything. But what does that mean? Um, it's very important to the story of Metro. But yeah. Um, uh, so, sorry. I mean, I did find um, even back in the first. I did enjoy the first book, and I did enjoy the second book as well. But I uh, I did find the the plot twist in the first book already somewhat. Uh, I don't know, liberal, I guess. 
it, which it, list it, is that? It seemed um, about the the dark ones being actually just misunderstood. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, 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 and and like the evil zombie creatures are actually our friends and want to be nice, but but humans are the actual monsters and so on. It's a, a somewhat tired uh, lip trope at this point, I believe. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's ver that's very true. Um, do you remember what the main character Artyom's home station is called? Oh. Uh... I don't. It has been. I read that as a teenager. I really don't remember where he lived. Um, so, I would. I, I'd like to know the Russian pronunciation of this. Um, is it Wedenka? Ah, Wedenka. 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 It's an abbreviation. Yeah. Yeah. Of выставка народного хозяйства, народных что там достижений хозяйства. Yes, the sure. exhibition, the exhibitions of achievements of the national economy. Oh yeah, oh, actually, <laughs> yeah. very very Russian. Um, so the last thing I wanted to hear, where is it? Do this. Um, was uh, Victor Palavin. Yeah. Have you read any Palavin? Sure, uh, I have some. Uh, have read some books of Pelevin. So Pelevin is probably, or used to be, uh, probably the the most famous uh, Russian fiction writer or postmodern writer or whatever. But he certainly enjoys a um, huge degree of popularity. And uh, I, the the best book by Pelevin, in my opinion, is uh, a book called uh, Snuff. Snuff. Because he literally predicted the special military operation in this book, isn't he? So it's a book about a post-apocalyptic world where the majority of people live either in a poor, technologically backwards Ukraine. Well, not Ukraine, I'm sorry, Urkaina. Uh -huh. <laughs> Which is, uh, and uh, yeah, and uh, there is a giant ship or a city in the skies uh, made up uh, made up of ships that are hovering over Urkaina, kind of like uh, that are sending their drones, and uh, those drones have an ability to strike Urkanians or to film them at the same time, and uh, it's uh, the main source of entertainment because there is constant war in Urkaina, and the drones are filming it and. Uh, sometimes are following them like in some sort of uh, soap opera but they also shoot them uh, for fun and uh, the main protagonist is the guy who is uh, filming who is an operator of this drone and uh, it's pretty funny and uh, yeah in, in the sky city they speak old uh, church uh, Anglo-Saxon language, which is a mix of Russian and some uh, made-up words and some English words. Uh, yeah, so I, I really liked it because, well, uh, and the people of uh, Urkaina speak entirely in uh, Russian swear words. So it, it has some, some, uh, yeah, <laughs> some genius in it for sure. And the, the drone media entertainment infotainment uh, from war business yeah it really rings true right now have you read uh, snuff no but that's gone straight to the top of my list that sounds brilliant yeah it um, is it, you... yeah but what, uh, what were your introduction what's, what's your introduction to believing 
Well, I've only read the one, and to be honest with you, I haven't finished it. It's quite hard. Um, it's uh, in English, or in England, it was published as um, The Clay Machine Gun. Uh, I mm. think in the US it was published as Buddha's Little Finger, and then in Russia it was Chapayev and the Void. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's, it's also the only one of his I've read. It's, and... Is it a slog to read in Russian? Because in English, uh, it, it feels, finished it feels it. Victorian. Yeah, it is not very well written, in my opinion. And also, it is my main problem with Pilevin, because other than uh, the book, I've only read like interviews with him and stuff. I've not read any of the novels. Maybe my impression is mistaken, but uh, to me, he seems like a very um, pseudo-intellectual writer. He is right up his own ass. Like, like like someone who who tries to appear very erudite and alludes to philosophical and religious topics and uh, tries to be like this uh, postmodernist deconstructionist uh, philosopher intellectual but it falls completely flat because he just has no idea what he's talking about and like all the philosophical ideas all the historical stuff he alludes to it's all like uh, just random things that he got from wikipedia or something and uh, not any actual deeper engagement with any of the topics that's my impression from chapayev and the void um so the character of chapayev in in the book he's based on the real fellow right mm-hmm. very loosely yes but yes, uh, an actual Vasily Chapayev did exist in the Russian Civil War. He seems like a wanker based on based on this book. <laughs> he was, he was, he was. I was going to um, uh, actually record an episode on um, the the operation by Ural Cossacks who took him out. That uh, uh, it was oh, a very dude. cool. Yes, I, it is in my plans. It, it was a very cool military operation, and uh, yes, I am definitely going to do that. Uh, Radio Desert. Yes, that's my favorite. Show. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it felt so. I d- you probably haven't read any Vic- English Victorian writing, um, but it it Depends. feels I was reading a ghost story by a fellow called M.R. James, and it's very flowery, and you're using a lot of words you don't need to, mm-hmm. um, and, and reading, I, th- I thought it was the English translation, but I'm glad, glad to know that it's not just me. <laughs> uh, I've struggled to get through. I mean, I'm enjoying it. I, I do like when Arnold Schwarzenegger shows up with the penis jet. I thought that was interesting. That's, that's a fun sci-fi idea. Mm, what I li- like, the one thing I really liked in Chapayev and um, and uh, the Void is uh, well, I did know actually that it was called that uh, the clay machine gun, but uh, in the UK. But uh, that metaphor is actually my favorite part of the book, I guess. Uh, like Buddha uh, firing the clay machine gun at reality and uh, dissolving reality. Uh, it's the only the only time I have ever. Uh, made a Pilevian reference in, in any of my uh, like writing or talking because I usually uh, it immediately makes me dislike people when they quote Pilevian. You sound quite bad, yeah. Yes, the one time I did uh, reference Pilevian was when I compared uh, Strelkov 
uh, and his uh, lappy thing uh, to the clay machine gun from from the book. Am I still here? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, getting it. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Good. So yeah, at the start, uh, John, you compared uh, Russia as the this uh, exotic um, land from the east, and all the writings uh, seem more interesting because it has this exotic factor and i mm. think uh, yeah russia is uh, a victim of constant uh, orientalism both by our uh, haters and our supporters and some of it uh, is constantly being done by russians themselves so let me try my hand in the racist uh, auto orientalism so because lately <laughs> i feel i was i feel that uh, russians are a nation that um, that is uh, half asleep. We don't have the southern boisterousness, uh, the western industriousness, and uh, eastern pragmatism. Maybe instead, we as uh, people of the north have an incredible amount of reserve to all kinds of disasters. If Russia was a superhero, then we would be a kind of a a superhuman who is immune to pain completely and uh, cannot feel it at all uh, the lack of sensitivity to anything good or bad i think is one of the prime russian qualities uh, but yeah <laughs> and uh, when the, the half asleep russians do wake up once or twice a century then something magical or terrible happens would you agree with my Orientalist assessment. <laughs> I th I think that's why I love Russia, um, and I'm a crazy Russophile. Um, I really am. It's uh, and I th and I think that's why um, any country and people that can survive a century under uh, the Georgians and the Ukrainians and, and the USSR. Uh, and then come out of it basically okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was a recovery period, definitely. But to survive that uh, shows such strength and such character. I don't know. Um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right on that. Uh, oh. But what do I know? I think. I think. I think yeah, it has ahead. negative. I, I agree. I agree with your assessment. Um, uh... But I think it has negative sides too, because um, a lot of negative sides, because it's more or less this trade, it kind of precludes having normal reactions to things. Yes. Like, like, like we, we always go very extreme one way or the other. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like, I don't know. Uh, Autistic in a way. We're <laughs> and not then, having then, a normal one. <laughs> yeah, we are not having a normal one. We're just sitting quiet in the corner, and then uh, a couple times a century, we just spurk out in a really major way. The school shooter race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it is what it is. Yes, but uh, I would like to. Not finish, but yeah, it's, uh, it's coming to an end. Our show, I think, for an interesting part and thoughts, uh, maybe we would share some scenarios for the future because um, 
and it's it's kind of connected to the SMO and then another news item this uh, weird buzz buzzing in the news uh, in the media about virus X virus X and uh, yeah it's quite weird I'm not <laughs> so yeah I actually uh, I actually had a yeah. question to our guest first if that's okay if please it's the time right. um, have you read any uh, Sergei Lukyanenko I have not. Uh, he's most famous for the like Nightwatch series, uh, like urban fantasy stuff. But he also wrote a bunch of sci-fi books. And uh, yeah, I, I my mom likes him very much. His old uh, sci-fi stuff. And um, I read one of those books as a kid, and it had a big impression on me. I don't remember which one it was. I need to uh, find it, but it, uh, I liked it a lot. Probably my prob probably my favorite uh, uh, Russian sci-fi book that I've read. So, so you're not into Russian sci-fi? Do you like Western sci-fi? Um, I am not a huge sci-fi fan. I like what I like is the there are a couple uh, Stanislav Lem books that I like. And he's kind of Soviet, but yeah, kind of yeah yeah. Um, there are there is some classic Western sci-fi that I like. Yes, um, uh, Asimov. Well, <laughs> kind of uh, sort of Russian as well. Kind of a little yeah. bit. Yeah, in, in a way. Um, I've read but... most of the Philip K. Dick. Uh, when yeah, yeah, I like I, I like PKD a lot. I like PKD a lot. Um, what else? I've read a little. But I did not read very much of like the sci-fi. Canon. Uh, I have read a little bit of Le Guin. Um, I have read a bit of uh, Larry Niven. Niven. I don't know how to pronounce his name correctly. Um, but other than that, I've never really been a huge sci-fi. It's not like I'm against the genre. Oh, of course, um, it depends on if you put it in the sci-fi genre, but I like Gene Wolfe very much. I didn't think I liked sci-fi, but I was halfway through um, uh, Roadside Picnic, and I was really enjoying mm. it, and I was painting my Warhammer miniatures, and I thought, oh, <laughs> hang on, maybe I do like sci-fi. <laughs> yeah, so my favorite science fiction book, yeah, is probably The Book of the New Sun by Gene Wolfe. I have a little uh, recommendation for... This is kind of on the edge of sci-fi. I don't know if you'd call it sci-fi, but... Uh, the famous Soviet uh, children's animated film called Mystery of the Third Planet. Oh yeah, I thought that I thought yeah, that had a very had a had a very Soviet feel to it. I don't I don't really know how to describe it. It's had that kind of sort of like um, almost like naive futuristic communist yeah. feel, very kind of uh, idealistic or utopian. I don't mm -hmm. know, but. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I checked so... it out. I, checked, I like Soviet animation. I recently, uh, so, sorry for the digression again, but I recently watched a, um, it a Soviet-Japanese animation film. It was actually the only Soviet-Japanese animated co-production that uh, was ever made. Um, the Adventures of Lolo the Penguin. It's very, it's very good. It was very good. The like only it. Soviet anime. <laughs> yes, the only Soviet anime, yes. I agree with Chad on the mystery of the third planet. Yeah, it's one of the best. 
And uh, if you would like me to do live streams on cartoons, maybe we could have an entire live stream watching Soviet cartoons. How about it? Uh, we will definitely check it out and uh, I will live comment it. Because you could. Yeah. I was saying you could scare the viewers by showing Soviet Winnie the Pooh. Why? <laughs> it's uh, definitely it, better than uh, American it, it Winnie is the Pooh. It is for some reason considered disturbing by Western audiences. I don't yeah, get it yeah. either. I laughed at it as a kid. I laughed at it as a kid. Yeah. I think oh, it's creepy. I've never watched the American Winnie the Pooh, actually. Never. Because it has lame graphics, uh, which, are, <laughs> yeah, uh, which are very uncozy, uncomfy. You know? the, the best thing about the Soviet animation that it has a very comfy look to it. And uh, yes, well, maybe true. it's just to me but yeah i think it's objectively oh. i just remembered uh, another it's not quite soviet it's the very end of the soviet beginning of the uh russian federation period um i don't, I don't even know how to pronounce it vampires of gion vampiri gioni have you guys seen that no it's mm. kind of it's um it's not really a film it's more of like a short animated film i, I don't even think it has any um like like voice acting, it's just these weird Soviet cosmonauts going to some crazy planet with all sorts of frightening, insane creatures. Um, but the uh, has has a very cozy, scary sci-fi feel to it, and uh, very very impressive uh, visuals. So we covered many many interesting topics, and uh, the segue uh, into the Soviet sci-fi was. Probably unexpected for the audience, but I think it was very good. So thank you, John, for um, bringing up this topic because, uh, yeah. I've been, pe been pestering you about it for every year on Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you have. <laughs> I'm, I'm the really milk of God grinds slowly but surely. That's right. That's right. Thank you all for being here. See yeah, thank you very, very much. Uh, to, yeah, thank, thank you, you very much, out. dear listeners. Thank you very much, dear guests. It was, I think, very fun. And uh, probably one of our longest streams, actually. 